You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. Research for the Real World. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Uthway and I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the UCL Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities at IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. In this season of Research for the Real World, we're getting involved in IOE's 120th anniversary celebrations. So we're going to be shining a light on the contribution that IOE postgraduate researchers, both past and present, have made to society through their work. This is also a momentous occasion for those involved with the Doctorate in Education, also known as the EdD programme, as it celebrates its 25th year. So on this episode, I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to Professor Anne Griffin and Dr Adam Unwin. Anne is a clinical professor in medical education at University College London Medical School and is their research director, where she's responsible for their leadership and strategic direction, particularly focusing on postgraduate medical education She also has a strong research background in medical education, an emerging and vital cross-disciplinary field for helping to shape healthcare policy, doctor's education and training, patient care, as well as pedagogy, both nationally within the NHS and around the world. Adam is an associate professor at IOE and works on the doctorate in education, also known as an EDD, as a module leader, tutor and supervisor. He is also program leader for the Master of Teaching, also known as MTeach. His research interests also include new teacher learning, the role of technology in education, work-related learning, and global development education. He also has a wide range of experience and expertise as a youth worker, teacher, and teacher educator in London. So Anne and Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Okay, so Anne, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in education? Like, What was your journey? Yeah, thank you, Laura. And so first of all, can I say happy 25th anniversary to the EdD programme, because I think it's been, it'll fundamentally underpin a lot of the stuff that I talk about. So by background, I'm a doctor of education. I've been a general practitioner in North London for the vast majority of my career. And I got into education by having medical students come to my general practice surgery and actually teach them. I really enjoyed it. I began to sort of see this as another sort of career journey. I took on various sorts of roles within the medical school, pretty junior roles. I gradually developed my career by taking a a master's in medical education. And then there was a little bunch of us, my sort of peer support group, who all decided at the same time to go off on an EdD. And and that really was, for me, a really sort of fundamental sort of turning point in my career, understanding that actually education had a science base to it, that it was creative, imaginative, and it could certainly transform education within sort of NHS settings, both in the community as well as, as in secondary care. So from really doing that, I became a mainstream academic and then where I am now as head of the research department as the medical school. So thank you very much to the EDD for making such a you know phenomenal change to my sort of career from, from medical doctor to sort of educationalist. 
that's really great to hear and you know it's really nice to you know hear about people's different journeys and you know there is never one straight path is there and there's often you know twists and turns of where we get to our destination so Adam how about yourself how did you get involved in education what did your journey look like? Interesting that I that I ended up where I was in many ways because I, I wasn't imagining it I spent some time after graduating and various work in I could encapsulate it calling it youth work but it was you know children in care children or young teenagers or older teenagers on youth training schemes and so forth and then I decided after I trained to be a teacher so I went and did a PGCE and then I was a teacher for several years mainly in sort of vocational subjects 14 to 19 sort of age group crossing over between schools and further education and I was seconded I, got, I did a master's, at, not in education, actually in development studies, but I was quite interested in the educational aspect of development, in global development. And after that, I got seconded to the IOE, the Institute of Education, as a, as a teacher educator on their initial teacher education program. So I've, it was only half my job, but I decided after doing that for a year to make the move. I'd been working with teenagers for almost 20 years at that point. And I thought, you know what, I think I can help other people work with teenagers rather than just carry on myself. And when I did that, I then after a few years was on the development team that started the Master of Teaching, the MTeach. And at the same stage, that's when I I did an EDD. I did that as an EDD as part of my work in as such. And, and I looked at the teacher learning that was happening in this particular context, which I might talk about later in the in the podcast. And after graduating from that, I started doing more supervisory work with doctoral students and then became a tutor on the EDD and a module leader on the EDD. So that that's a very quick thumbnail journey of how I got to where I did. No, it's good. It's how much can you fit in in, the, in a short 20 seconds? Welcome to you both. Um, so Anne, you know, in this episode, we are going to be talking about the doctrine education or this EDD. But could you just tell us a little bit more about well, what is an EDD and what was it like for you as a student? I did my doctorate now 10 years ago and I really, really wanted to do an EDD rather than a PhD because I knew that because my primary care, you know, primary role was as a clinician, I was never going to be a sort of stellar research academic with a sort of singular career pathway, but I needed to be very agile and flexible. And one of the really big things about the EDD was for me was that that whilst you could carry on a research trajectory with a particular theory and a particular method and always look at the same context you could equally do lots of different sorts of things and that was really really appealing so I for example researched sort of quality quality assurance student voice narrative uh, professional identity workplace learning and looked at lots of different sort of methodologies and theories along the way and for me that was really important because it gave me that I guess we in medicine we call it sort of pluripotentiality we talk about sort of stem cells developing in lots of different ways and that was exactly how I felt about it it empowered me to be able to take on lots of different research projects see them in a very different light and and then sort of do a sort of robust sort of study around that so that was really why I chose to do an EDD and I think along the way I sort of the things that I gained from it was that that it really made a difference to how I thought about things. So growing up as a sort of a, as a medic, 
the science that medicine has is very different from the social sciences and it really helped me understand real world context it helped me become a much better critical thinker and it, it helped me sort of understand that sort of how important those sort of individual sort of personal pedagogies were in making sort of choices for sort of research and and career developments that's really interesting to hear. So Adam, with you being on the other side of this experience, could you tell us a little bit more about what you see the role of, say, situated learning is when you're working on the uh, EDD programme as a module leader, tutor and supervisor? Okay, thank you. Well, I, it's interesting to hear what Anne said in that her initial, because that resonates very much with my experience of working with students, that the EDD allows you, allows the student to look at their situations and work out what they, what interests them at that particular stage. So it's part of a journey, really. So situated learning is a concept developed by academics called Leben Wenger, quite quite well known in the very early 1990s. Their idea was that they were looking at authentic contexts, yeah, sort of real world context. And sort of they called it an apprenticeship model, even though it wasn't an apprenticeship. It was about the learning that was just happening by people being in their situations, which is it's very different from formal education as we know it in schools and colleges and universities where there's a prescribed curriculum. So Anne's talking about the different things she did. Many of them would be related to her work and professional contexts. And so not necessarily in an overt way, but that would have interested her. And rather than on a PhD that might have a very prescribed or tight project delineation that situated learning allows one to look at what's really happening and I'll talk about that a little bit because situated learning has communities of practice as a as a sort of underpinning part of it so I, I can talk about that a bit later but that's why I think behind the EDD there is this notion of situated learning although we don't it's not really mentioned in in the prospectus necessarily or, or any overtly but that's what's actually happening Great. So just then you mentioned communities of practice. Could you tell us a little bit more about how and in what ways that's also part of EDD? Right. Yeah, this is really important because what emanated from situated learning was that communities of practice theory, which is is now was by developed very much by Wenger, one of the originators of, you know, talking about this. And I think on the EDD, I've just without going into a detail about communities of practice, they were looking at workplace communities of practice, but that their theory was broad enough to allow communities of practice to be a family, say, for instance, or a, an element of society. So, so one of their core ones was Mayan midwives, where they looked at what was happening. How did this was back in the 1980s? How did these people learn to be midwives? And they found this was very much based on these communities of practice, which often very family led and within and, and people learning that way by watching, observing all kinds of social interaction and so forth. So none of the midwives were taught formally to go and do an MVQ in midwifery or anything like that. Now, how that relates to the EDD is, I think, in two ways. I think the EDD means that the students on the EDD form some sort of community of practice themselves, which makes it a little bit different from PhDs because they come 
onto the EDD and they're part of a cohort of students, quite often up to 30 of them all starting at the same time. They're all from very different contexts, but they will find that there's, there's an element of sharing and comparing and dialogue about their professional context, which mainly done through lots of social interaction. And I think it allows them to critique and look at their contexts and discuss their research dilemmas and talk about the theoretical perspectives and sort of current regimes and things. So there will be overlaps, even though people are working in quite different contexts. So for instance, neoliberalism starts to feature quite often because there's neoliberalism in education, but then it also might find that how that impacts in NHS, for instance, and performative cultures of targets and so forth. So even though the the students are from quite different contexts, they do start to form some sort of community of practice amongst themselves. And it goes with them to a certain extent, because if they all start together, they don't all neatly follow along and do an exact five-year program or seven-year, but they will they will cross paths at different stages, certainly in the first two to three years. Now, I think the other aspect is the role of community of practice really goes back to what I was saying about situated learning, is that they are, by the very choice of coming on an EDD, it's just what Anne was talking about, they're interested in what's happening in their work situations. And I think that's very often there are elements of a community of practice in their research where there are, uh, you know, there may be different roles, different expertise, different knowledge going on. And so as researchers, they need to be aware of that, even if they don't use that theory themselves in their research, they will be aware of the power dynamics and so forth, which links a little bit to what I'll talk later about as an insider researcher. So that, I think, why communities practice sort of underlie much of what happens on the EDD. No, definitely. And it's it's really interesting to hear about the, you know, the very comprehensive and you know, holistic approach that you're taking and the understandings that, you know, students get through going through a programme like this. So Anne, you mentioned already the impact of the ED on your own personal development, but what's the impact being of your research on the real world? Can I just reinforce what, what Adam was saying just about the practice angle? Because I think that is one of the really strong sort of features that the ED offers. I did my master's by basically distance learning sort of correspondence course and whilst it was fine it was sort of a mechanical process to get a a degree it wasn't the same sort of transformation that you have when you meet with peers from such a diverse background that you learn from different people's contexts and you all brought stuff to the table you all went away and did your homework and you talked about it and so you know your learning was was multiplied 30 times because each person then was able to contribute to that and you know got very long-standing sort of relationships and friends based on the EDD programme. So just to sort of validate, I guess, what, what, what Adam was saying. No, that's great. I was just going to ask, has your community of practice extended beyond the uh, the 10 years since you've done your EDD? So it sounds like it has. Well, I supervise on the programme now. I sort of, I think I help recruit people into the EDD programme who are, you know, full-time clinicians who also want to sort of develop careers in education. So, you know, for me, this was a sort of accessible, you know, life happens, work's very busy, but this was an accessible sort of programme that actually, you know, goes often very well alongside sort of full-time work as well, which I think is, you know, what, what in a way what that 
professional sort of brings to it is that real world sort of full-time experience but also equally there are extra demands on that and I think the EDD sort of balances it that quite well as it sort of brokers those sorts of different sort of student practitioner roles so I think it's great. I think it made quite a lot of impact on me generally so obviously you know I'm now a professor of medical education research thank you EDD because that was a fantastic thing that I think helped me on the way I think it impacted on me as a clinician. So one of the theoretical sort of methods that, or the methodologies I was interested in was, was that of narrative. And I know that one of my taught elements, I looked at different sorts of approaches to sort of understanding narratives, looking at psychoanalytic approaches, looking at sort of micro-linguistic approaches, and looking at the work of deconstruction. And there was it was fundamentally challenged all of the stuff that I thought about in terms of communication because medical educating more or, or working as a doctor you you do a lot in narrative patients tell you lots of stories but principally what you're interested in is more of a, a chronology or an events of what you tell you so that happened to you and then what happened to you but actually through understanding narrative in a much more theoretically sort of intelligent sort of way I began to sort of actually sort of think well I know they're telling me this but why are they telling me that why doesn't their sort of narrative sort of make sort of sense maybe in a sort of cohesive way because when you're going through a crisis you know you know when you're sort of suffering from ill health how can you present a story to an you know to a clinician that actually is you know cohesive from big beginning to med because you're struggling to make sense of this yourself as, as a person with with sort of some sort of illness so I felt that was that became fascinating to me and I think I became a much better listener to what stories I was hearing patients tell me and in terms of impact in terms of the research I do I think it, it meant that so a lot of the research I do is commissioned research from funders from policy makers etc and I think it's helped me to understand not only the needs of an academic in terms of, you know, quality and publications and all the rest of it, but the need of policymakers working within particular fields, particularly within the NHS. And so work that I've done has tried very much to make a difference to that. So, for example, I did some commissioned research for the General Medical Council who were looking to review their approaches to undergraduate and postgraduate quality assurance. So they had a particular quality assurance model. And we took a, a realist uh, approach to evaluating basically what worked for whom and when. And, and they that research informed their policy and their practice about how they quality assure across those settings across the whole of the UK so you know that's just one example I think of actually you know of the sort of fundamental impact I think of having an experience like the EDD program. No that's really great to hear so with your research how have you found that it's had to develop or to some to address some of the current issues in medical education at this unprecedented time? Obviously, sort of the impact of COVID has been massive and that had massive sort of impacts on sort of and more of our methods in terms of stuff like that, because obviously we could not research in clinical context while they were in such extremists and obviously managing with sort of exceptional patient demand. But incredibly, as soon as sort of you know, that, that had sort of not even settled, but had sort of, I think people had, had sort of got used to it, they were very in, in keen to have us back into clinical settings to sort of start evaluating sort of stuff. And we had a very fascinating experience 
being doing some research looking at how organizational reorganization in the NHS impacted on training. And, you know, the NHS is constantly re-transforming itself, you know, new models of sort of service delivery. And, 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 and some people even think that it's sort of a relentless barrage. Well, there was nothing quite as relentless as COVID for reconfiguring the way that basically clinical care was enacted. And our research into service change was actually took part pre-COVID, but actually during COVID. And to pick up on the real relevance of what Adam was saying, we actually used situated learning and we used a framework developed from that called the Expansive Restrictive Framework. And we applied that to how we understood teaching and learning in a sort of apprenticeship way in the NHS. And obviously we had pre-COVID, there was lots of different types of sort of models of service reconfiguration. So that model sort of held us to sort of look at a sort of a constant set of sort of attributes, I guess. But it became fundamentally important when COVID hit, because, you know, without having some sort of guiding light to sort of knowing what you were looking at, you could have gone off in all sorts of tangents. But we had this grounding model that we used in that in that sort of COVID related thing. And it was fascinating because we found that all of the things that happened in routine service change pre-COVID was exactly the same in a COVID situation. There were no different issues that arose, but they were more magnified because of the sort of impact of COVID. And so I think that for me, you know, using sort of Fuller and Unwin sort of model of sort of expansive restrictive theory, which actually I used my own doctorate thesis, actually helped us produce some really sort of robust and, you know, theoretically generalizable results that now have been fed back to sort of the medical reg- regulator and out to medical education communities that are responsible for education and training. Excellent. Thanks, Anne. Going back to you, Adam, can you tell us a little bit about what some of the gains of, but also maybe some of the difficulties um, of doing insider research in professional contexts? Right. Yeah. Thank you. Just before I do that, I just want to pick up on what Anne said, because I, I thought it's really interesting that my role as a MTeach program leader and as a teacher educator is very much about what's happening in schools uh, and, and colleges, more, more that sort of age group. But it's interesting because COVID, when it hit, schools were right in the forefront because they you know, couldn't operate. They had to move to different ways of working. And it was very interesting, even though it had been very, very difficult for teachers, as it has been for many NHS workers. But it actually started for the first time you realised that teachers and schools started to be valued as hubs in the community rather than just about an exam factory. Whereas we'd had years and years, which is all about getting grades and all that sort of rhetoric. And so it was quite interesting about how suddenly people started appreciating teachers as holding things together. In And some of my students on, on my program did research about that on the, as part of their master's. But I mustn't go off and uh, tangent too much. But just to say it was interesting how the picture and image of schools changed slightly. Whether what will happen with that, I don't know. <laughs> because if they, they do sort of relentlessly go back to wanting, you know, exam results. But just on and in terms of uh, insider researcher, this is a important concept for many EdD students because they are looking at their they are doing research within their own context, sometimes in a micro way, sometimes a bit more of a macro way. 
So I think some of the sort of what you call, I think there are pros and cons quite often overlap. <laughs> so I thought one of the classic ones was you are known, but you could be known and accepted, but you could be known and resented. So you can, it's, it can go both ways. And someone wrote an interesting article, Justine Mercer, uh, I think it was called the the double-edged sword of being an in, insider researcher. But But I think one of the things that you become a sort of semi- ethnographer by being using your own you've got some of those things of being in the situation so it links to the situated learning and possibly communities of practice as well so you know the systems you know the cultures you know the terminologies used you you know the history for example those sorts of things that if you were employing a completely separate researcher from a project they wouldn't know that They'd have to find that out and it would be different. So I think they those can be, in, knowing that means you can have, you might have a stronger rationale of why you want to do this work, why it needs to be done, yeah? And so it can become sort of problem and solution centred from experience. So that that's quite powerful. And you probably know where, what's rich data, where to go for that rich data and the complexities that are happening there and all the nuances. Now, that's very difficult to do with a sort of prescribed research project that's done from outside. There are there are cons, yeah? People can have agendas. You can be biased. People can be biased. There can be all kinds of conflicts. So it's not perfect, but I think it's worth um, valuing that. Now, the other thing is that it quite often if students on the EdD are doing this usually, not always, but qualitative techniques where they're being interpretivists. So they're trying to gain an understanding of, you know, the different actors and the different people's their lived experiences and phenomena. So they're, they're coming from that angle. So the insider researcher, that's helpful for that. So I think that sort of encapsulates it as it, why it's important on the EdD really. Great. Thank you so much for for explaining all the different concepts and sharing your experiences, both, you know, doing the EdD and also teaching on it. It's really, really fascinating to hear. Um, So finally, what's next for you both? Adam, should we start with you? I'm a module leader on the EdD and and a tutor on the EdD. I'm carrying on with that. We've had to do this COVID's really restricted the way we, we worked or changed the way we worked. So I've actually been running... I do a thesis uh, workshops module. It's been online all of the time I've been doing the last two years. And I came into it in the middle of the pandemic and took it over. And it's managed to work quite well. And it's quite interesting because one of the people, the students say, we want to meet each other face to face. We want to meet, you know, we like having a chat. And actually, so I decided the program leader said, You can't do that if you exclude people. That's, so I'm, I'm doing a social workshop for them this Saturday. So <laughs> so this is the first time for two years that, that they'll come in. So I'm still doing the online ones. And it's interesting because the online ones we use on Zoom, we do it on a Saturday. But actually we have people from Indonesia and Chile and all over the place who they couldn't, they wouldn't have been able to do it before. So we've had to develop and that, that's quite interesting. Uh, yeah, I think that's where I'm working at the moment. I know I've, I've actually got on a module on Friday and Saturday as well on the EdD, so I'm right in, the, in that at the moment. Well, I hope it goes well, and I'm sure um, they'll really appreciate all your efforts on this, so good luck. How about you, Anne? 
So, yeah, I'm absolutely the same as Adam. I've maintained my links with the EDD. So now I'm supervising doctoral students from the Institute of Education, which is a, is a real privilege to contain that link. And I continue to learn from their sort of endeavours on the programme. I guess I'm also really trying to encourage clinicians to take on sort of formal roles and formal training in education. So very much sort of pushing people, I guess, in that direction if they feel that that's appropriate for them. I'm also, so medical education and and, and research is still very much a Cinderella uh, speciality within my field of, of medicine. You know, it doesn't cure cancer, it doesn't do the other things, but it has a fundamental importance to, I think, to patient experience, patient safety through a whole range of mechanisms in terms of good education and good assessment for doctors. So I'm also trying to make medical education much more of a mainstream discipline. It's actually very interdisciplinary, but actually to sort of raise it, you know, sort of high onto onto the sort of people's agenda. And I think doing things like submitting through the the research excellence framework, which we've done for the last two occasions, working very collaboratively with wonderful colleagues at the IOE for the last sort of submission and and really sort of changing people's perspective of it to understand that it actually does fundamentally sort of important things like you know sort of unpicking social you know justice issues and inequalities and you know rather than it sort of being very micro focused on sort of you know small small issues just to get them to see that it's important to the bigger picture so yeah so see me and my team are on a bit of a a, a mission to do that we've recently won an award which was the association for the study of medical education's institutional commitment to scholarship which i think has been fantastic i hope that's going to do something for getting medical education recognized but i think fundamentally continuing in the sort of direction and the sort of alliance with the institute of education is going to be really important for giving it credibility I'll just chip in, just chipping in at the end what Anne said, because when I did the EdD, I I graduated over 10 years ago, and there weren't many people from the medical profession on the EdD. There were very few occasionally. And then I started being a tutor, and I've noticed, I think over the last five years, more and more people from nurse education, GPs, all kinds of range. Whereas I think if you went back 15 years ago, you could probably count them on one hand in a cohort so definitely there's some success there that it's being recognized and I think just sort of pulling together I think people might listen to this podcast and say oh right well they seem to just be talking about what's happening at work and I think what's important is that you know the situated learning communities of practice the insider researcher it operates and it's in a program that's underpinned by there's links to what Anne was saying, really, you know, theoretical, philosophical, methodological and analytical issues and criticality about them. So I think that underpins what's happening. So it's not just a you know evaluation projects where you things are described and evaluated. Oh, this this doesn't work and that does work. So it goes much deeper than that. So that's what I think makes it, you know, in, really interesting. No, definitely. And I think what's really become very clear when you've both been talking is just, you know, your enthusiasm and passion in this area. And so, you know, thank you so much for sharing all of your work. It's been really, really great to hear. And I personally have learned a lot. Oh, good. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks very much.
<laughs> Thanks very much, Laura. It's been, a, it's been a privilege. You can follow Anne on Twitter at Dr Anne Griffin to learn more about her research and you can find out more about Adam's work in the episode notes. Some of what we've covered today is also available in the episode notes. If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to find out more, there's an archive of 14 past seasons available for you to listen to. Search iWe Podcast from wherever you get your podcasts to find more Research for the Real World episodes, as well as more podcasts from the IOE. I'm Dr Laura Uthwaite and thank you for listening. Research for the Real World is produced by IOE Marketing and Communications and IOE Research Development. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Ilagin is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 